Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome today to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Brown about his great new book, Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, Christian. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for for making the time. Welcome today to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Brown about his great new book, Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, Christian. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for, for making the time to, to talk to me about this book. It's, uh, it's one that I think is uh, especially well written. It was actually a very pleasurable read, which you don't always find. So I appreciate that, and I wanted to ask you about that in a little bit. Uh, but I think it's a, a really interesting contribution because uh, you, you kind of blend between your own personal narrative of exploring these sources and then how how they've been approached traditionally. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, which we will will only be able to scratch the surface. But uh, before we get into the book, uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, perhaps mentors that have been influential in either the topics you've chose to study or your, your approach? Okay, well, I got interested in Islamic studies when I was in college. I went to Georgetown University for undergrad, where I'm, where I'm now a professor, I guess earning back my tuition gradually. I, uh, I, so Georgetown is a Jesuit school, so we have, uh, two, we have to take two theology classes, and you're required, to, you know, you're required to take two theology classes. I took one on biblical literature, and I took the second one just randomly on on Islamic law, Islamic thought and practice. And I remember actually thinking, oh, you know, terrorists and camels, that'll be interesting. So that was back in, that must have been in 1997, the spring of 1997 that I did that. So I took that class, and it had a huge impact on me. And uh, the professor uh, was a woman named Mesam al-Faruqi, who is... Uh, Palestinian uh, originally, and she's the niece of the, the late uh, Ismail Faruqi, who was a great, uh, you know, um, professor at Temple University and a big founder in Islamic studies in the United States. So anyway, it had a big impact on me, and uh, you know, I really got interested in Islam. In fact, you know, not that this is important, but I mean, actually, I became Muslim. Uh, that must have been the summer after my freshman year of college. So for me, in a lot of ways, getting interested in Islamic studies is really a function of my own interest in Islam as a religion and my own you know, uh, commitment to the religion and exploration of the religion. I think that one of the big questions that drove me and it's driven me ever since is trying to figure out where the boundaries of the religion are, where, what does it mean to be a Muslim and what does a Muslim have to believe and have to do and where, where are the lines between culture and religion or maybe better way to phrase it would be where is the line between contingency and necessity uh, or you know 
eternity and change in a religious tradition, particularly in the Islamic tradition. And what is the relationship between, you know, being Muslim and being Western or being American? So these are the big questions that really drove me. And, you know, ever since from the beginning of my sophomore year in college until today, I mean, I've just been a, been, you know, incredibly compelled to study almost you know, everything I could about the Islamic tradition, Islamic civilization. Yeah, that really comes through in the book, too. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, it sounds like these questions have been there since your, your kind of first interest in the subject. But uh, can you think back to think about when this started to kind of emerge as a book project? How did you kind of conceive of it? And can you tell us about the, the kind of the journey the book took? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, should, I remember I was going to say one other thing, which I forgot about, uh, which is that uh, when I was in college here, there was a person who was at the time she was doing her PhD, but she, you know, after that, she she did was her teaching a class as a, a senior PhD student, a scholar named Haifa Khalafala, who's an Egyptian woman. Uh, she lives in the UK now. Uh, that she taught a class on Islamic law and society, and this really had a big impact on me. I think uh, she especially, when she was doing her dissertation on the Egyptian Sheikh Mohammed al-Ghazali, who died in 1996. And uh, I think through her, I kind of really got exposed to the thought of someone like Mohammed al-Ghazali and kind of post-Abduian Islamic traditional reformism, you might want to call it, or kind of conservative reform. And that really had a big impact on me. And then when I went to graduate school, my advisor was uh, a Lebanese uh, scholar named Wadad al-Qadi, and she had a, you know, obviously had a huge impact on me as my advisor, um, and really, I think, pushing me to be a careful and, and textually-based scholar. Uh, that, so the question, when did this book kind of come together as a project? Well, actually, it was the, the publisher, One World. They, they, they actually suggest I'd written a book for them on Hadith, an introduction to Hadith, and they uh, they said, "Oh, you should do a book." You know, Bart Ehrman has this book, inter- inter- um, misquoting Jesus. You do something on misquoting Muhammad, and I said, "Well, sounds interesting, except that I don't really want to do that kind of book." I mean, if anyone, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I like Bart Ehrman's books, and I respect him a lot as a scholar. But you know, his books are very kind of unveiling the the origins of Christianity, and that's just I'd have zero interest in that from the perspective of, of Islamic studies. So. You know, the, the editor of the series said to me, well, why don't you think about it more in terms of contesting the prophet's legacy? And that really was that that uh, really um, resonated with me. And I think this idea of contest. So for me, the real title of the book is the subtitle, which is the challenges and choices of interpreting the prophet's legacy. And I think that for me, the reason why I, it meant a lot to me as a su- subject is because through especially through talking to public audiences and, you know, whether they're Muslim audiences at Islamic Center or whether they're, you know, non-Muslim audiences in the general American public. I just, over and over again, you know, sort of the question was, uh, you know, what does, what does Islam say about this? What does, this, what does, you know, what does Islam say about that? What about these controversial ayahs? What about these problematic hadiths? And, you know, looking at how Muslims, and over and over again, I was forced to go back and kind of try and almost like channel the Islamic interpretive tradition to explain to people how it had come up with such and such a position or how it had dealt with such and such a problem. And through that, I, I really started thinking about the Islamic tradition as being a, as being a participant in the, the human experience of what are the challenges and choices that humans have when it comes to talking about truth, when it comes to talking about 
law when it comes to talking about morality um, and, and change. And, and, and so this was, and of course, the great conversation with modernity for all people. This was, uh, so this really kind of was the engine behind the book. And I wanted to bring the reader into sort of a, take them on kind of a tour of the Islamic tradition, both geographically and historically, and show them its, its methods of, of, of tackling questions of, of law and justice and truth and morality and scripture and, you know, reconciling truth inside of scripture with truth outside of scripture. And uh, to show people kind of Islam's take on these questions, that was, that was what the book, the project was for me. Now, in the introduction, you uh, you kind of lay out uh, much of what you just said, but uh, you use a really good example of kind of the the politics uh, that have been going on in Egypt in the past few years, and how scripture, which is kind of central to this book, the idea of what what do we do with scripture, um, how it can be used for multiple purposes. Uh, can, can you kind of just give us a taste of this kind of wide spectrum that we see scripture being used uh, in the contemporary context? Yeah, well, I mean, you sort of, you know, you just kind of, you can date mark whatever whatever time you're talking by the examples you use. I mean, when I wrote it, it was really, you know, I was, of course, very interested in the Egyptian revolution, um, since depressingly defunct, because, you know, I had spent so much time in Egypt, I, I had so much fond feelings, um, you know, such a place so close to my heart. You know, place I really considered home in a lot of ways, and uh, so it was. And it was you had such a great kind of theater of the use of scripture in in protests. People, you know, one group of people would be citing hadiths. You know, they'd say things like, uh, you know, the best the best struggle is to speak truth in front of a tyrannical ruler, and then another group saying, you know, that the prophet said that. The, the civil strife is sleeping, and whoever awakens it uh, is, you know, cursed by God. And then, you know, when the, the military coup happened in June 2013, you, know, you saw these like military montages on TV, and they would be citing this this hadith of the Prophet supposedly said, you know, uh, that soldiers of Egypt are khairu ajnad al the best soldiers on earth, and and so that's a very, you know, it's an unreliable hadith, and it. It was just interesting to see the way that you know, scripture was being used and abused and manipulated by all the different parties involved, and you know, in, in the different times that the, during the Egyptian Revolution, that people were drafting constitutions and trying to figure out how you could fit the, the Sharia into the modern structure of the, of the Egyptian state, and, and and so you just saw these questions that are sometimes thought about as really arcane academic questions. They were really part of public life. So I thought that was a great example. And of course, you can look at today, you could look at ISIS and you know, what are their, this way that they're using Quranic verses or hadiths to justify the, the, what they do. And so you can see this all the time. Yeah. yeah. Now, you do a really good job of kind of uh, interweaving both the past and the present. And another thing I think you do really well is kind of open up um, contemporary Muslim worlds that are. These these discussions about kind of reform and modernity, uh, they're often, at least from my experience, uh, couched in kind of Western discourses about this. And uh, so I really appreciated that that you went into great depth into many contemporary, uh, you know, Arab writing and Arab speaking or Arabic speaking uh, thinkers. Um, and one of the things you do in the 
uh, early chapters is you kind of lay out the multiple interpretive traditions that Muslims have used historically. Um, and I want to ask you to kind of run through that, um, but I, I am really interested uh, in the way you presented it because uh, you, you basically do it from the eyes of Shah Wali Allah um, and his own kind of reflection. Um, so I'm wondering if you could think about wh- why him? Why do you think he has a unique perspective on uh, kind of the legacy of the Islamic tradition and, and in his presentation why, why you felt it was uh, – valuable for a contemporary reader yeah so i want i really wanted to try and and i was that's i had i kind of had to write that chapter because that was almost an introduction because the the rest of the book gets so deep into a lot of questions of islamic thought that if you don't provide an introduction to that that the you know the reader will just be lost so i, I needed to basically provide an introduction to pre-modern islamic intellectual history but I wanted to do it in a way that was not, you know, incredibly boring and dry. So I, for me, it was really almost a personal turn because when I, the point in my life when I really felt that I gained, for me, um, real insight into the Islamic intellectual tradition was when I read the books of um, Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra, who's a, a big Egyptian scholar, who's the dean of the Sharia faculty at uh, Darul Ulum, I think, in Cairo, or yeah, and he died in 1974. So I, he was an Egyptian scholar, and I really, he wrote these books, one book on each of the four imams in Sunni Islam. He wrote a book on Jafar al-Sadiq. He wrote a book on Ibn Taymiyyah. He wrote a book on Ibn Hazm. And it was his, uh, I remember his book on Malik, Imam Malik, just really kind of laid out to me the, the, the early period of Islamic, of Islamic legal thought and how it emerged. And what I really loved about Muhammad Abu Zahra is that he was able to look at different schools of thought and different approaches, whether it's like Ahlul Ra'i and the Ahl Hadith or the Mu'tazila and the Sunnis. And he showed, you know, he was able to look at the world from each of their perspectives. So he kind of explained why they were, why different groups that were often bitter enemies or bitter rivals why they took the positions they did and, and the approaches they did with the same intentions, but with different sets of priorities or with different ways of dealing with those priorities. So that I, I really felt like he helped me a lot to understand this. And he gave me a really good structure for thinking about Islamic intellectual history, or at least the early period. And then I, I realized that he actually was drawing on um, Shah Wali Allah. So he, Shah Wali Allah is all in Safi, Bayan Asbab al-Ikhtilaf and his Hujat al-Baligha were really the sources that had inspired Muhammad Abu Zahra. And so I, when I went back and read those books of Shah Wali Allah, I saw this was this person who I thought was a really a terrific mind, a terrific, a terrific intellectual historian. Um, and so I, I, I really used, I, I used him. And of course, he was also a great traveler in, in, a, in a sense. I mean, he traveled to Mecca and Medina and he lived in India. And so I also wanted to, I liked the idea of giving introducing the reader to the Islamic intellectual tradition, but not through the kind of Arabocentric perspective, but to really begin from India and to go to sort of use that as a way to think about Islam in a, in a way that's, you know, maybe a bit more realistic and, and, and reflective of reality and history than, than just, just pretend that it's all about Arabs and the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Now, could you talk a little bit about uh, the relationship or how you understand kind of uh, traditional interpretive methods 
in relation to text, community, and then individual readers, you, you seem like you have a lot to say about this in various places. Mm. Um, yeah, I think so. The, the, a big question, I, so at the, the end of the first body chapter, I leave off in the sort of the 1700s, the late 1700s when Muslims are first coming into contact with Europe, Europeans and not necessarily just Europeans, but modern Europeans. So, you know, modern industrializing, rationalizing, technicalizing, to use the Hodgsonian terms, uh, Europeans, um, whether colonial, whether armies or businessmen. And so that that represents this great rupture in the in the Islam interpretive tradition and the confrontation with modernity. And I wanted to show that a lot of the trauma and crisis of Islamic thought in the modern period is not about the methods. It's it's about. Um, it's less about change in the way that Muslims have looked at scripture and more about their overall epistemology, epistemological worldview. So, you know, you, you'd have instances, I mean, one example I use is, you know, the, the, the question of the sun. Um, there's a hadith in which the prophet describes the sun. It, after it sets, it goes and, and prostrates before the throne of God. And, and this, of course, in the early 20th century caused all this anxiety in Egypt and, and India and other amongst Muslim scholars because some Muslim scholars were more affected by Western thought or saying, you know, this clearly shows that Muslims, when they were evaluating the reliability of hadith, they didn't know about modern science. They didn't pay attention to the content of the hadith. And so they, we sort of accept it as scripture, as real as the words of the prophet, these things that are just scientifically uh, you know, cosmologically, astronomically, patently untrue. We know that now because we now we know that the Earth goes around the Sun and all these other things. And uh, no, this is sort of this great moment of crisis. And yet, you look at the. I give examples of lots of pre-modern Muslim scholars who they all knew the Earth, the, the Hadith wasn't literally true. They knew that the Earth, the Sun, didn't literally go and prostrate before the throne of God because they know that the Sun is always up because. They knew about prayer times. They knew if you went really far north, the sun was always up. And they knew that at different places, the sun was rising, setting at different times. So they, it was always figurative. And yet, um, when it comes time to you know this this confrontation with with European modernity, this becomes a big crisis. And there's the, the tradition is is forgotten, and it's overwhelmed by the sense of crisis and inferiority uh, before the modern West. So that was you know the the extent to which uh, it's not so much. Your, your hermeneutic method or your way of engaging the text that matters, it's the level of confidence you have in terms of to what extent you feel that your scripture really embodies truth. And if you're committed to the idea that your scripture contains truth, you can easily find methods to reconcile that truth with truth extrinsic to the scripture, whether it's empirical truth, whether it's reason, whether it's you know, the truth of human social interactions. These are all sources of truth that Muslim scholars in the pre-modern period considered very important and that they always were reconciling with the truth within the Quran and the Sunnah. Whereas if you if your confidence in the truth of scripture is shaken, it becomes uh, suddenly truth outside that scripture becomes uh, a threat to it and it becomes something that you either have to protect the scripture against or sometimes you just sort of submit and uh, historicize or 
qualify your scripture and you believe that it's no longer eternally true, but it's rather just sort of a historical product of one time, one time and place. Now, as you move along, um, you focus on how sometimes uh, we're looking at content and sometimes we're looking at kind of how uh, the ideological purpose for which it, uh, scripture is being used. So, uh, and, and you go through a number of examples, which you can you can pick and choose if you want, or I'll ask you if you'd like. Um, but can you talk about how how this kind of dichotomy between what scripture actually says and how how it's put put mm-hmm. for specific purposes in in contemporary Muslim contexts? Well, I mean, overall, I'd say that the you know the the main you know the the rubric under which this falls, or the heading under which it falls, is this idea that. In, in an interpretive tradition, especially a precedential about one, where claims of authority are rooted in the past, you, you know, the the way to introduce a new argument is to, and this is, you know, everybody knows this, but the way you introduce a new argument is by by rooting it in the an old argument and by by using precedent to justify what you something new, you know, by by sort of claiming it is not new at all. So. Uh, you could be doing something that in terms of its intellectual cognitive content is exists in your tradition, but the purpose for which you are retooling it is a novel purpose. And uh, what are, is there some example that you had that uh, sure. you, cause I can't remember any examples I used. Yeah. Well, uh, in the, in the fourth chapter, you go through and kind of discuss different types of, uh, interpretive methods. So things like reinterpretation, historicizing scripture, changing norms. So you talk about jihad, you talk about women leadership, you talk about uh, the, the idea of Muhammad marrying a young girl. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you could just tease some of these out. So, I mean, I think the, uh, well, the, the, I remember one case that probably is a very short description of, I mean, one case is like the, is is the case of um, whether or not the prophet was born circumcised so this was not this was not a really big debate that people got into in the, the pre-modern period there's some people who thought the prophet was born circumcised you know preternaturally circumcised some people thought he wasn't and you know it didn't really matter uh, in the in the in the 2000s however this unfolded into like a big controversy in Egypt and you know some a journalist was fired for writing a, an article in which he said that the prophet was born uncircumcised so it's uh because it wasn't really about that topic it was about whether or not you appeared to be challenging some sacrosanct aura around the person of the prophet so here here's a case in which the person who was saying that the prophet was born up you know that he was born uncircumcised like everybody else that uh you know, the, he was actually saying something that was perfectly well rooted in the Islamic tradition, but because it was such a controversial time, I mean, because making taking statements, taking positions on Islamic issues was, you know, sort of put you either for or against tradition, for or against the West, it, it becomes a political issue. So it's not about the cognitive contents, about the political consequences or how they're perceived. The uh, the other case examples I used are 
you know, one of them I, I mean, I find fascinating is the question of the prophet's marriage to Aisha. You know, when he married her when she was six and he consummated the marriage when she was nine or 10 years old. I, I think that's uh, fascinating because it really, you know, for many Muslims, let alone non-Muslims today, I mean, it causes really a lot of trauma and people, you know, a lot of Muslims are just, you know, they're disgusted, they're terrified, they're, um, they don't know what to think about this idea of, you know, somebody who's a you know fifty three or fifty four year old man marrying, you know, having sex with a with a uh, with a ten year old. I mean, a lot of people today would find that to be really you know um, stomach turning. And what interests me is that if you know that level, like for example, if I told you that you know somebody was murdered on the street outside, you'd probably say, "Oh, that's terrible." But if I told you, you know, a fifty three year old man had married a ten year old, you know, you probably you feel like almost physical revulsion. And yet the universality of moral positions regarding those two cases is actually inverse to that that reaction. So, you know, every society throughout human history thinks murder is wrong. I mean, they might disagree about what murder, what constitutes murder, but every society thinks murder is wrong. And yet for most of human history, and in fact, for many, many places, for many millions and millions of, you know, uh, billions of people today, there's not a problem of a 15-year-old man marries a 10-year-old girl. You know, so actually the level of your almost uh, kind of gut reaction to that statement about marrying a 10-year-old is inversely proportional to the universality of that, in both in human history and probably today. So that fascinated me. And you know, the, seeing how Muslims have dealt with that issue, you know, some, seeing them kind of uh, – different Muslim scholars really go through extended interpretive gymnastics to try and argue that the Aisha was actually older or to, you know, try and come up with some means of explaining this. Whereas other Muslim scholars, you know, more traditional Muslim scholars, you know, actually kind of doubling down and saying, no, the prophet did this and it's actually entirely acceptable. And, and you see, you know, you just, you see how this great wrestling match between kind of tradition and perceived notions of cultural authenticity and globalization and modernity on the other side, you see this taking place through the people's reading of scripture and an attempt to understand uh, the life of the prophet. So that, that fascinated me. And so I kind of wanted to, in that, using that example, I gave um, kind of a different set of approaches to it through the discussion of this debate that unfolded in Egypt in the mid 20th century on that issue. Now, um, much of what you're uh, dealing with in the second half of the book is, is kind of the modern perspective, uh, but you have a chapter specifically called Muslim Martin Luther's and the Paradox of Tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering if you could kind of just set, set up what you're trying to do here uh, by, by explaining what you, how you conceive of tradition, um, what the relationship between tradition and scripture is uh, in the contemporary period where – it seems like uh, there's there's kind of almost a bypassing of tradition. Tradition, and so how how how, do, how should we kind of think about these two in, in dialogue? Well, I mean, I think of tradition as in the Latin kind of Catholic sense of traditio as the idea of the the interpretive body and the interpretive you know um, system that is built on top of scripture, uh, through which it's understood and through which it is. Um, brought to bear on, on the world around it and to which it is 
transported through time and, and made meaningful to new times and to new places and through which the internal the internal um, differences and variation within scripture are made sense of and then also how the clash between truth inside of scripture and truths outside of scripture are reconciled so that's the function of tradition capital T and you know it's it's the work of of scholars or or clerics or priests or whatever um, or you know uh, whatever however you want to name that class and so I was interested in this idea of Muslim Martin Luther's because you know there's this constant chorus for Muslims to have you know reformation and things like that and then yet of course people always forget what happens when you get rid of tradition is you create is you create chaos and that sometimes has good results and sometimes has bad results, but it's certainly going to have unpredictable results. And so I wanted to use example of, I wanted to kind of show uh, people, show the reader what, what you lose when you cast away tradition and what you gain, what are the upsides and what are the downsides? And I, 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 I used a couple of examples. I think one of them was, um, what was the first one? Uh, one of them was, I think, the the hadith of the parent killing the child. Like, if the person who a parent who kills their child won't will not be executed for that crime, mm-hmm. which is a position in you know majority of schools of law and Islam that you know if a parent kills their child, they can be punished through lots of means, but they can't be executed for that. And and this is the case in which you have a hadith that's actually not very reliable. Is the real its real authority doesn't come from the fact that the prophet said it because it's probably not very reliable but it comes from from even from a muslim perspective but it comes from the fact that it's agreed upon as a position in fact it's actually not agreed upon but people often claim it is and so you know that's a case in which tradition in the sense of the interpretive consensus of the muslim scholarly class is really i think in a way betrays the one of the central values of the Islamic scripture, which is, you know, the, the quality of life. And so I showed how, you know, one school of law, and in this case, the Maliki school, had kind of rejected that hadith. And not only because it was unreliable, because it also contradicted, you know, why should a parent, you know, why should a child's life mean less than another person's life? Why does a parent have a right to kill their child and, and not face death for that? But they would, they would face death for killing another person. And another case I gave was um, women leading prayer. And this was a situation in which, you know, you, you, you saw that it was clearly true. I, I mean, I argue, and this is actually a, a case where my, my opinion changed. And when I started writing the book, I, I did personally did not support uh, women leading prayer, women leading mixed, con- mixed uh, gender prayer. But, you know, as I actually started researching it, I was, I was really shocked that the you know, the evidence was, you know, either inconclusive, but if, it, it, you know, it was probably more leaning towards supporting women leading mixed gender prayer. And so, you know, I thought this was a really clear example of, of tradition in a way kind of betraying, again, of betraying scripture. And then I used, I think, also the example of, of, uh, of apostasy, of apostasy, people who, who leave Islam. And so there is a case where you have the, the basis, the scriptural basis for saying that apostasy is a death penalty offense, you know, comes from fairly well-known, um, well, widely believed hadiths, 
But actually, the tradition of interpretation of Muslim scholars had qualified these hadiths tremendously and had really um, used other data from the life of the Prophet, from the precedent of the early Muslim community, to show that these were not representative of of what you know the, the Muslim approach to dealing with apostates was. So this was a case in which tradition in a lot of ways redeemed scripture. So those are the, I wanted to show different ways in which tradition and scripture uh, in, uh, interact with each other. You also um, talk about the, the Quran only movement, which uh, oh, yeah. is a really fascinating example in this. Well, I trash them. For- <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Can you, can you explain what the Quran only tradition is for people who yeah. don't know? This is a, a you know, modern movement that emerges in South Asia in the late 1800s and, and a bit Egypt, in Egypt in the early 1900s. And then actually today it's, it's really, it's probably the strongest location is in, in both in, in, in upper, upper class Pakistani society and also in Turkey in certain, amongst certain religious thinkers in Turkey. And among certain Muslims in the West, it, it's very you know it's the idea that basically that you know you get Islam can be derived from the Quran alone. You don't need the Sunnah of the Prophet. You don't need Hadiths. And so I basically was arguing that this is a very selective. This is an impossible. This is a, an approach that is impossible to apply consistently, and it basically is a a, a means for understanding Islam in a, for people who want to live. Islam in a specific cultural and economic context, and that it's not, uh, it's not able, you're not able to actually have a, a consistent and I think intellectually honest relationship with the Islamic tradition if you follow this approach. And I used I use the example of Spinoza, Benedict Spinoza, as the kind of the inter, maybe the kind of cultural interlocutor for discussing this tradition. And and then I, I think I, I used Nasser the late Nasser Hamad Abu Zaid as a as the one of the Muslim scholars I I I talked about. Now, um, when I first met you, this was uh, a topic that I remember you starting to think about pretty seriously. Was this idea of lying about the Prophet? And uh, you have a whole chapter where um, you're thinking about truth and lying and kind of the implications of this. So. Could you perhaps start by uh, telling us how, how do we define truth and why does it matter? And then on the the opposite end, um, how have Muslims treated the idea of not telling the truth mm. with a this capital is, T? Yeah, so this is a fact. I mean, I, you know, I was originally going to write a, a book about this and, you know, calling it Lying About the Prophet of God. And then that, you know, this, I ended up writing a bunch of articles on the use of unreliable hadiths and things like that. And that really kind of, I really, I was like, you know, this really is a lot of what I wanted to say on this issue, but I was really interested in the topic of, of how you, the question of kind of using stories that, you know, aren't really true. And we all have this situation, you know, we, and especially professors, you know, we tell a story that's not <laughs> technically true, but boy, it makes the point well. So, and then we sometimes even say, you know, it's not really true, but I think that you still, and you sort of fill in whatever fluff you say after that. Well, if it's not really true, then what, you know, then what, why are you using it? Why should I believe it? You know, but this is a, I, I got interested in this because I think this is a, this is such a global issue or, you know, it's a universal question of when, you know, to what extent is truth about something being really concretely true in the sense that it represents something that really happened. 
or is truth about getting at some deeper point, some deeper truth that lies behind the, behind, behind the surface reality. And so I, I wanted to root this in, you know, uh, not only questions of what truth is, so, you know, even like the Aristotelian notion of correspondence notion of truth, where truth is something is true when it corresponds to reality. And that, of course, is a very important notion of truth in the Western tradition and the Islamic tradition. And then you have, you know, you know, uh, the notion of the, the idea of Plato's noble lie, right? So is, you know, is something true, maybe it's not superficially true in the sense it describes superficial realities, but it gets at some deeper truth. Um, that's still correspondence value notion of truth, but what you're saying is the truth, the reality to which my statement corresponds is deeper than the surface reality of our world. And then you have you know, a notion of truth that develops later on, which is the you know coherence notion, which is that something is true when it 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 coheres within a a system. So, it, in a way, this is a skeptical approach, which is basically you know, we don't really know absolutely what's true. So, something is true when it makes sense within the confines of a system to which we subscribe, and that's in a lot of ways kind of the modern, you know, even what you might call like pragmatic approach to to, to truth, which is that. Um, you know, it's true. You can say that someone's like, you know, it's really okay what you believe as long as it makes you happy. You know, in that sense, it, something is true when it, it brings you solace. And this is, you know, if you really, I think, talk to people who are, I think, deeply and, and honestly skeptical about the ability of humans to really know anything and the ability of language to really describe reality, that's actually the the, the most honest um, school of thought about truth, which is that every, you know, we're all, we're always, we're in, we're uh, inevitably and irreparably prisoner to our own subjective uh, vision of the world. And therefore there is the background reality against which, against which we compare claims of truth has to also be our own construction. Therefore there's no way to achieve some universal agreed upon background against which all claims of truth can be measured. Therefore, we're all like the human race is just trapped inside a coherence notion of truth. There's really no way to have correspondence value of truth. Um, whereas if you believe in, in transcendent, then, you know, you have that to compare claims of truth against. Of course, then you have the problem of interpretation. So uh, that was, and, I, and I, I, I also talked about, you know, the extent to which in the Western historical tradition, there's been this tension over whether history is about telling the truth or whether history is about providing, providing good exemplar, you know, is, is history about uh, telling what really happened regardless of whether it's boring or stupid or is history really about giving people lessons to learn from. And I think the fact that people, if they're listening to this, they might say, Oh, well, that's sort of both true. Well, there well, oftentimes you find those two are intention. Like what happens when you're a really good story, but it's, you don't really know if it's true. Like professors have all the time. Or, you know, I, and I use the example of, of modern movies, um, you know, modern Hollywood cinema and the way that, that uh, you know, historical epics are, 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 are used to kind of create and spin reality in a way that, that creates an, a, a lesson or a moral exemplum for the audience. And so I wanted to put the Islamic tradition in the context of this bigger question. And then I talk about how, you know, where Muslims have fallen along that spectrum. And now I'm you know, so bored of talking about this subject. I can't imagine the audience actually wants to hear me go into more detail on it. So I'll just stop there and you can ask me any other questions. You have. All right. Well, uh, 
I think there's two other kind of uh, key points in this chapter. Is, you know, one, what is at stake when Muslims actually use dubious hadith? Um, but then you also present uh, another type of method uh, for treating authenticity um, besides acceptance or rejection. You talk about this idea of genre, of reliability. Um, so perhaps maybe you could tell us what, why is it a big deal uh, and then what, how else might people think about hadith? So, I mean, one, it's a big deal because in the Islamic tradition is a, is a tradition that is kind of consciously obsessed with authenticity. So its power comes from the fact that it matches claims to scriptural authenticity. And and so, you know, Muslim scholars, particularly Sunni scholars, to develop this method of hadith transmission criticism that supposedly allows them to identify accurately what the sunnah of the prophet is. Yet the same scholars then go on to regularly use hadiths that they know are unreliable. Now, they'll say, you know, to the man, they'll all say that it is totally forbidden to lie about the prophet, to make up something about the prophet. Okay, fine. But then they'll, you know, there's a big, there's a lot of room between I know I'm making something up and yeah, it might be true or it's said that or I've heard somewhere that or it's attributed to the prophet that or, you know, there's all these ways that you can use material that's really, sub, you know, that you know is really unreliable and, and totally made up but we, you're, without violating those, lo- those red lines that, that you've drawn. So the, uh, I, I talk about kind of why Muslim scholars did that and I think they did it because it allows them to you know, like Plato's guardians in in the Republic, the noble lies allow them to to create and guide their flocks, to create kind of narratives and guide their flocks in ways that they think is effective. So it doesn't really matter whether or not what the flock is hearing is true. What matters is that it's making them into good Muslims. That's the important thing. And I think that comes from the, the kind of the hierarchical notion of truth and 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 the 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 elitists um, paternalistic approach of Muslim scholars. And I, you know, and what are the what are the what are the costs and benefits there? And here, I think I talk a lot about uh, Kant and his notion of his arguments against lying and his notions about enlightenment, and that you know, you you yes, you may guide people in the right direction, but there's you lose a respect for truth, and you lose, and once you lose that respect for truth, it may be that it becomes broken irreparably. Or maybe becomes it becomes shattered in a society, and that's a huge that's a huge price to pay. So I bring that up as, and I, I think at the end of the end of the chapter, I really try consciously to show that it's unclear what the right thing, the right approach to take regarding truth is, because I I try to give this example of how beautiful and moving and real a a kind of an untruth can be. And how that you can live in those and subsist in those and be happy in those and, and have a really meaningful, pious life in those. But at the same time, you know, there's there's huge problems if you really want to, to be connected to truth in the ultimate sense. So uh, that the second question you asked about the uh, a different approach to Hadith, this is a weird part of the book because, you know, the, the book is sort of descriptive um, – for almost all, you know, it's mostly descriptive, but this one section, I kind of interject, injected my own, Hey, here's a new idea, uh, suggestion, which was that, you know, the Muslims since, you know, in the, in the modern period, they had the crisis in terms of dealing with Hadith is that, you know, you can't reject 
it's in Sahih Bukhari or Sahih Muslim because these books are, are seen as canonical and if you challenge them, you're challenging kind of the entire Islamic tradition and you're challenging the past and you're, you basically will, if they've been sealed with the authoritative stamp of the Islamic tradition, if you break that authoritative stamp, then you've shattered the entire tradition and its reliability. Therefore, you, you kind of have to stand behind the entire contents of these books. Um, and what I argue is that this is not really, you know, Muslim, early, until the, the 10 hundreds, really, of the common era, Muslims didn't think about hadith as being in books. They thought about hadith as being genre, different genres of material, of the, of the subject matter of those hadiths. And that one of the earliest traceable positions of Muslim scholars, especially hadith scholars, is that they treated these different genres of material very differently. So hadiths that dealt with manners or etiquette or you know, encourage, you know, hortatory material or things that dealt with the end of the world or the beginning of the world or the rewards you receive in heaven. This stuff that they, they generally treated laxly in terms of its transmission criticism, whereas things that dealt with halal and haram, that dealt with the corollaries of the Sharia, like marriage and divorce and praying and fasting and all these things, ahkam, they were very strict with. So what I, what I you know, al- almost all the hadiths, and all, certainly all the ones I can think of, almost all the hadiths that people bring up today as being problematic in their meaning, they almost always involve actually these early, this first group of, of subjects, of genres that I mentioned. Namely, that they're, they, involve, they're, they come from genres that Muslim scholars never didn't really take seriously. Um, and so if we thought about their instead of thinking about hadith as being, you know, this hadith is in Bukhari, this hadith is in Muslim, therefore you have to think about it as, you know, in this way. The, you, we think about them as being in, you know, either genres dealing with law or genres dealing with virtues and, and uh, the end of the world and things like that. Uh, they, you know, even if there's a hadith that's in Bukhari that deals with, like, the end of the world, that b- both Bukhari and all the people from whom he drew that hadith, they all... Uh, treated these two subjects differently. And so you're, you're instead of dealing with like one, one filter, you're actually dealing with two sets of filters, one sort of set at a high level, one set at a very lax level. And so that's probably more, um, that approaching Hadith in that way probably more represents the methods of early Hadith collectors and, and critics than to sort of say that because something's in a book, it, it has certain, this, you know, this status or that status. Now, you wrap the book up with uh, a very lengthy discussion on this verse 434 and many of the kind of interpretive approaches that have uh, been uh, been used in relation to it. Um, I'm wondering, perhaps you could talk about why this uh, – why focus a whole chapter on this, what your take on it was, what were you trying to, to say in this chapter? Well, I mean, I think that that chapter, that verse, really, as I say in the chapter, you know, it's like sort of the ultimate problem, uh, the most problematic verse, the most problematic piece of scripture for Muslims in the modern world, because it's, you know, it's not a hadith, so you can't say, oh, it's just not reliable or something. It's a Quranic verse, and it's just, and it's sort, it seems so kind of egregiously unacceptable in the modern world that, you know, you almost either have to sort of submit to it and just say, well, you know, God knows better, or you have to say, well, it can't be true, and say no to scripture, or you come up with some kind of 
you know, interpretive device or gymnastics move to, to try and explain the, the verse away. And so I, I wanted to show how modern Muslims have found themselves in that position and then look at how Muslims dealt with it over time. And I, I also, you know, some scholarship has been done on this, on this uh, verse, and I really didn't like the breadth of that scholarship because it's sort of obsessed with fiqh and tafsir. And I don't think that either of those are the most useful way because I mean, especially from the perspective of law, I mean, law is, you know, when you look at like either dicta or, you know, legal discourse or what you might think of as like the black letter law of a medheb. Uh, first of all, it changes over time. Second of all, it's, it's, uh, not representative necessarily of how issues were adjudicated in court. And so what I really wanted to do with this chapter is to bring out examples from the pre-modern tradition. And these, of course, very hard to find. Pre-Ottoman examples are very hard to find of actually instances in which people, a Sharia court judge was dealing with the case of of a husband beating his wife. And then I I use also examples from the, you know, post-Ottoman period, Ottoman period and into the modern period where you have either pre-colonial or, or Sharia courts operating under colonial rule, where they're dealing with this issue of a husband um, uh, oh, husband beating his wife and the wife coming to complain about that. And in fact, I use one example from modern Saudi Arabia, a court case from modern Saudi Arabia. And what I, what I want to show is that, I mean, I didn't want to show this. It sort of came out, came, it was you know, very interesting to me as I did the research. And then I wanted to, to bring this to light of, to the reader's attention in the chapter is that when you look at how Muslims courts dealt with this, whether it was, you know, 900s in Cordoba or the 900s in Iran or the 1300s in southern, northern Syria or, you know, 1940s in Zanzibar or 1910 in, you know, French West Africa or 1990 in Saudi Arabia, what you actually see is something completely different than what the fiqh would suggest and what the tafsir would suggest, you know, the tafsir generally just rotating around the fiqh problems, which is that um, the 434 isn't really the issue. It's 435, which is the issue, which it talks about uh, if you in uh, the shakaka benoma. If you fear, if you fear that the the two suddenly talking to a group in the plural, the, the if you plural fear that these two, the man and the woman, will separate, will split up, then then send a arbitrator from his family, an arbitrator from her her family. If if they two, if the two of them want then God will reconcile between them. And so this was really all, this was under, you know, Muslim scholars understood this as being addressed to the Qadi and to the Muslim court. And so if a, if a wife came to the court and said, my husband's beating me, um, it was assumed that it was, things had reached the point of needing an arbitrator. And the, the, then either representatives from the man's family and the woman's family had to come and they had to discuss this or the judge would appoint people to go and look into the case or he'd separate the, the couple and house them each in the house, in the house of a reliable neighbor and then try and get to the bottom of the situation. So what, what I found interesting is you, you never have an instance that I found. And of course, you know, we only have the data we have, but you know, I never found an instance where somebody came to the judge and said, you know, wife said, my husband's beating me. And the husband said, well, but the Quran says I can. The, the, the judge didn't say, oh yeah, well, yeah, the Quran says you can. So sorry, lady, you have to leave. No, in fact, the one instance in which a husband actually uses, says the Quran says I can do this, 
the judge says it doesn't matter because if if you've either injured the wife in any way, you owe her compensation. Okay, so it doesn't matter if she's your wife or not. You if you injured her, you injure anybody, you owe them compensation for the injury. And if you're if if things have gotten to the point where she's here complaining to me, okay, then it's obviously gotten beyond your own ability to handle it. And I have, as a judge, the right to either judicially end your marriage or I have the right to demand that you, you know, treat her in such in, in a different way. So what you see is a complete different reality than what the fic would suggest. And I thought this was a huge shortcoming in scholarship on this verse, which is that it had been a, so focused on texts and legal writing um, and kind of book law, and it didn't look at at the cases that were adjudicated. So you also, um, you know, on the far end of the kind of in, interpretive spectrum, we also have this outright rejection, right, where we we literally say no to the passage. And you talk about what what some of the problems of that approach are as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, actually, you know, so I read, you know, Amina Wadud's. Uh, has some dis- two discussion to this in two of her books. One on women, women in the Quran. I think it was. I can't remember the name of the book exactly. But and the second one is inside the gender jihad. And I actually, I liked her her writing a lot. And some people were very critical of Amina Wadud. I, I I thought that she actually brought out. She did a a really good job of of bringing up kind of the different approaches to this verse and. And that she's sort of misquoted in that, you know, she's not, I don't think she's saying you should say no to scripture. What she's saying is that, you know, Muslims, and I, and I, I say this very clearly in the end of my book, you know, if you, if what you, if you define it saying no to scripture as not taking scripture on its face value, and Muslims have always said no to scripture. Muslims have constantly, constantly, constantly said no to the Quran. Okay. But there's a big difference between saying no to something and saying, I don't understand. I must be understanding it wrong. Okay. And I, you know, a good example, I don't use this in the book, but I think a good example is there's a big difference between, you know, your father saying to you, you know, go do this, you know, go like take the garbage out. Let's say your dad tells you, you know, it's 1am is take the garbage out right now. Take the garbage out. Sorry. And you're thinking, it's 1 a.m., it's freezing outside, it's snowing, there's ice outside. I can't, you know, what does he mean take the garbage out? I, mean, he must, I must be misunderstanding him. What does he mean, you know? Oh, maybe he means I should take it out in the morning. Maybe he should mean that in general I should take it out, but, you know, today I don't have to. So that, you know, you, you assume that your father is telling you the truth and you just have to understand what it is he wants from you. Versus this idea that where, you know, your father says, take the garbage out, and you say, no, I refuse, you know? And what you're doing there is you're actually saying, I am immediately jumping to conclusion about what he means, and it's because I suspect my father. I'm suspicious of him. I'm suspicious of authority. I reject authority. I reject whatever patriarchy. I reject, you know, the authority of elders. Like you can, it's a, it's an act of rebellion against the the authority, the the authority structure or the the the, the interpretive order in which you live, and that the difference between saying no and asking how is not about the father. It's really about the child. It's really about the way the child views the world. And that, so it's not really about, you know, what's the status of the Quran or what's the status of the Sunnah. It's really about what are our views towards the nature of scripture. 
And those views are not necessarily conditioned by scripture. Those views are conditioned by the outside world, by by economy and society and technology and things like that, that, that don't necessarily have any right to dictate how we should view questions of, of whether or not a religious tradition is true or false. So um, that's what I, I found uh, Wadud's work to be quite enlightening uh, on those points. And so I, I brought her up um, really as a, you know, as a fan, I guess, of hers uh, in the end of the book. Now, um, Jonathan, we've taken a lot of your time, so thank you very cool. much. Come on, you know, you're, you're doing, you're the one who's wanting to hear about my book. Of course, so, of course. That's a compliment to me, and it, you, I've taken your time. Well, no, it's, it's a very well-written book, and I think, uh, I think anyone, you know, specialists and kind of a lay audience will really enjoy it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the things you have going on now or projects you have, you know, down the road? Boy, yeah, well, um, you know, at first I, first I, second I finished this book, I was like, I'm never going to write another book. <laughs> Just exhausted. <laughs> but then I, I found myself really getting into this other topic, which now I'm now, I'm doing, uh, right now I'm editing and there's a Persian treatise by a early died in the early 1500s, a Persian scholar named Jalaluddin Davani, who was a the last sort of big Sunni scholar of southern Iran, and he wrote a treatise on the Mazalim or Mazalim courts, and it ended up being a very influential treatise. And so I'm doing a, a, editing this treatise, and then I'm kind of really thinking about doing a and I'm sure edit it with, and write an article on it with one of my friends who are going to co-write the article kind of the influence of this of this treatise. And then I really am interested in the idea of, of Mavalim courts. And I'm interested in the idea of of a of how a legal tradition that believes that its its roots and its authority are are, are based in divine will and that it you know that the the Dakadi and the Sharia represent God's the idea of God's law for mankind. The Qadi is the one who is sort of adjudicating before in, in the you know before God's law or at God's law and and yet how can this tradition also accept the validity and in fact to br- embrace a, a separate form of justice that's outside the Sharia court and how you know I'm interested in how the they you know Muslim scholars made and, and judges and legal thinkers made sense of that and how they adopted that and where it came from and, and what it, how it ended, how it ended up being used um, to to make legal reform possible, so that's that's really interesting. Maybe who knows? Maybe I'll write a book on that. I think that's what I would like to do, but we'll see if I have you know if I have a chance. <laughs> well, good luck, Jonathan. Uh, thanks again. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure. I'll talk to you later, Christian. <laughs>